Next Lord's Day, I plan to start a series through the book of Hebrews. It seemed prudent to delay that start until our mission teams returned and here on this 4th of July weekend when a higher number of our members and regular tenders are out of town, it seemed good to just delay until we begin and gather again uh, next Lord's Day. Last week we considered Luke 23, 32 to 43 as we prepared our hearts for the Lord's table. The paragraph in Luke 23 that follows is an ideal lead-in to the anticipated journey through the book of Hebrews. So coupled with the resurrection of Jesus, there is no account in Scripture more familiar to us, nor more important to our salvation and eternal destiny than the death of Jesus Christ. As born-again followers of Christ, our spirits are recreated to find spiritual food for our sanctification by saturating ourselves time and again in the historical facts and in the theological meaning that is attached to the death of our Savior in our place. And for those who have yet to place saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, please know that the narrative that we consider here is more important to you than life itself. Let's seek the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you as we come to a passage we know well. May you keep our minds from wandering. May you keep us from the folly of thinking that we know all we need to know. May you help us to see afresh what our Savior has done for us. And may the light of the gospel dawn on those who desperately need it in their lostness. We gather before you as we have sung of your death for us and the implications and your resurrection life that confirms the meaning of that death. Lord, we rejoice and pray again now that we will as the church of God, feed upon your word. Teach us your truth and move us, I pray, to draw close to you as you, by your spirit, instruct and draw close to us in this place and time. We've gathered as your people. We come to you in prayer. We ask that you'd hear our cry. Through Christ we pray. Jesus hangs dying on a Roman cross. There are two robbers that hang crucified on either side of Jesus. Verses 32 to 43, along with Matthew 27 and verse 44, highlight the incessant ridicule that Jesus suffers, including ridicule from both robbers. We learn that in the Matthew account. But in the window of time between 9 a.m. and noon, one of the robbers experiences an entire change of heart regarding Jesus. Drawing certainly from his knowledge of messianic prophecy, knowing some of that prophecy concerning Messiah, knowing of the hope of the age to come and the eternal kingdom, that criminal places his hope in Christ. He throws himself upon the mercy of Jesus in that hour. Verse 42 of Luke 23, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Verse 43 records Jesus' response. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The narrative then continues through verse 49 with three interlocking but distinct emphases. We see as we just remembering from last week as we mentioned Augustine's words by paraphrase, one criminal was lost that none might presume. One criminal was saved that none might despair. And we come then to see the end of the matter now. First of all, looking at two signs that bear witness to the meaning of Jesus' death. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. So the first sign that we see is darkness at midday. From noon until three, darkness shrouded the land. We're not told exactly how dark it was. We're not told the specific cause of the darkness. It was not a solar eclipse because Passover was determined by a full moon, so that would be impossible that that was the cause. God may have ordained Sirocco winds to blow off the desert and create an unusually heavy cloud of sand and dust to shroud the sun. Whatever the means, a veiling of the sun's light at this time of day would have riveted the scene in the memories of all who were there. You could not have forgotten it. I remember precisely where I stood as a teenager a million years ago. And I remember exactly the spot at the store where I was the day that I saw the most full eclipse of the sun that I'd ever experienced. I was with my dad in the bustling business section of our town and there was this eeriness to it all. And it was almost like everything just stopped. All the voices stopped. And everybody just kind of stared. I, I, I've never forgotten it. We were... It seemed like everyone, I mean, you didn't talk to people, it, it, it's just a town situation, but everybody seemed spooked. They were anxious for the light to come back. Can you imagine three hours of this? A darkness that you know something's wrong, but you don't know what it is. It would have riveted itself in the memory of everyone. Remember that day when that, that darkness came at midday? Remember that? That was so eerie. So unnerving. Where were you? They all knew. Now in our day, everyone would immediately consider the physiological cause of the darkness. What's going on in the planets? Why is this the case? News would be filled with explanations of what took place and why. But steeped from youth in the Old Testament scriptures... The Jewish people would have understood intense darkness as midday, at midday, would have not only riveted their thoughts in the phenomenon physically, but in the biblical foundations to it. Now, just think of it. You're growing up in synagogue and you know the Old Testament scriptures very well, and here you are at midday in three hours of darkness. You know something's going on. It would have brought to attention Amos 8 9. On that day, on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day when things become finalized, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is prophecy. 
They know this passage. They know Joel 2. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord comes with the darkening of the sun. They know this. Joel continues, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. That is, to be darkened at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. They know these prophecies. They've recited them from youth. They've read them in synagogue. They recognize something is going on, and there had to be a tremendous sense of fear, of anticipatory fear. Perhaps this is the end. It riveted their attention in a way it would not have gained ours. Well, there is certainly more to come in fulfillment of these ancient prophecies in the end times. God's judgment was, however, falling that day. But shockingly, it was not falling on the earth. It was falling on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son in whom the Father was well pleased. It was falling on Him. God's holy wrath falling on Jesus who suffers in our place. As the hymn puts it, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And that leads to the second sign, and that's the shredding of the temple's veil. Darkness at midday, verse 45 continuing, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The reference, of course, is to that massive curtain that shielded from view the holiest place in the temple. In that inner sanctum, the Ark of the Covenant was housed now as symbolic of God's glorious presence, which once hovered physically above the Ark. The veil was a perpetual reminder that access to God was highly restricted. That veil stood there to remind Israel of this reality. Only one day per year, the high priest went behind that veil to offer blood on the mercy seat, on the lid of the ark as atonement for Israel's sin. Remember Leviticus 16, that careful procession, just one time per year that Israel could get that close to God. And the whole process leading to that inner sanctum and then leading away ritually from it. As if to say, as if God were saying, I can touch you but momentarily because of your sin. That curtain standing there 364 days a year to seal off. And one moment on that one day per year to bring to pinnacle all of the sanctifying work of the sacrificial system to allow sinners to come into the presence of God. That curtain had stood there for centuries. 
in varying forms through the tabernacle, then the two temples. It had stood there to remind us that access to God is restricted. Matthew and Mark indicate that the curtain veiling God's holy presence in a symbolic sense now, as the glory had left, was torn from top to bottom. What makes that even more significant is the fact that the curtain was a hand breadth wide. It was that thick, woven with that care and with that weight, and it split from top to bottom. Miraculously shredded, allowing anyone inside the holy place to peer right in on the presence of God, as it were. But what's the meaning? What does it mean that this curtain split? We can fill in the idea, certainly, but Jesus' death was the ultimate and wholly sufficient sacrifice for sin that provided his people with full access to God's presence. This sacrificial system had now been fulfilled. We find in Hebrews 6 these words as the author of Hebrews sees this connection. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's our hope in Christ now. Jesus is gone. There is a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Levi. A new priesthood with a new and final and complete access into the throne room of God behind that veil. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, that is laying down his life, dying in the sinner's place, he now has brought us behind that curtain right into the presence of the Lord. Let us draw near then with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Bodies washed with pure water. Not through the ritualistic system that was bequeathed to Israel through Moses. But now through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We walk right into God's presence. Because of Jesus. That's what his death meant. And the curtain is rent to show it. The penalty of sin was lowered on Jesus, the final Passover lamb. He gave his life to redeem his people. And all who trust in his payment of sin are now invited to enter the presence of the Lord on the basis of the son's sacrifice. Because Jesus died, think of it this way, because Jesus died, we pray. Now, people prayed before the death of Christ, but in a new way, as a priesthood of God, he died, and now we pray. Because Jesus died, we confess our sins to God with no priest but Jesus himself and no sacrifice but his death. Secondly, Israel's temple, the ritual sacrificial system, and the Levitical priesthood that, em- that enabled worshipers to approach God on his terms was now obsolete. Kind of the second half of that idea and what we see here in these texts in Hebrews. By his death, Jesus fulfilled everything to which the temple had pointed for centuries. God was merciful not to destroy the entire temple complex that day. He could have shook it into rubble. He left that for the Romans to do not too long thereafter. 
But he didn't do that. He just shredded this curtain to show that the system was now fulfilled. The place where sinners meet with God now is not in a temple, but is as the temple of God in the person of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our intercessor. He is the one to whom we come. And it's His blood that paves the way to walk into the very throne room of God. Two signs. We notice, secondly, Jesus' final cry bears witness to the manner of His death, the way in which He died is significant here in verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I want to just draw out several observations here. First of all, is not, this not an unexpected end? I mean, if you're, if you're scripting it as a play or something, we, we would expect a dying man to whisper these words. A last gasp as the candle of life flickers out. But Jesus speaks with the Greek phone megale, the megaphone. With a loud voice, he speaks out. He raises his voice in triumphant committal of his spirit to the Father. That's unexpected, and it causes us to ask why. What is the significance of this volume? Why even mention it? What does it matter how loud it was or how quiet it was? I think it matters in that crying out with great power demonstrates that Jesus laid down his life on his terms. Death did not conquer him. He was submitting to it. He chose to enter the dark, foreboding dungeon of the dragon in order to defeat it. That volume indicates this, that he chooses to lay down his life. And let's look then thirdly at the, we could say, the anthropology of it, the doctrine of man and how we're composed. Jesus is the eternal son of the triune God. The son is not a part of God, nor is the son a separate being distinct from the father. Jesus is of one single essence with the father, yet is a distinct person of the one triune God. But Jesus, who is truly God, very God, took on flesh, and he was a man at that point. The eternal Son became a man conceived in the womb of Mary when overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And every human being, including Jesus, is comprised of flesh and spirit. We are material body and we have an immaterial spirit. Our sense of consciousness, our thoughts, our convictions, who we are, how, how we stand in this world is our inner being carried out with our body. The two go together. They're inseparable except in death. Death separates these two essential aspects of the human being. At death, our spirit, the inner essence of our being, leaves our bodies the body is dead, we say, not because it ceases to exist, but because it is separated from the animating spirit of the deceased. And standing at bedsides, I can tell you it's almost visible. 
watching people die, there's a last breath, and you could almost sense, you could almost see the Spirit leave. And then the Spirit is dead. Not because it ceases to exist, but because it is separated from the physical body of the deceased. We are body and spirit. Jesus praying here says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is dying. The two are separating. That doesn't mean he ceases to exist. We, we have a tendency to think that way within the culture where we find ourselves. Death just means you're done. It's over. What did Jesus say in verse 43? Today you will be with me in paradise. Today I will be there. He knows his body isn't following. But he and his inner being and identity will be in paradise that day. And here he turns his spirit over to the Father. He yields it to him. So when we die, our self-conscious, immaterial spirit enters eternity immediately, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. Fitted with a temporary body, I believe, we live as ourselves in eternity until our bodies are reunited through resurrection with our spirit. This wasn't, as some call it, a skin suit for Jesus. That he just left behind and dumped. We know this. Let us not forget it. His body rose from the grave. He was in heaven that day. The dead. Spirit separated from body. And let me say then, number four, by way of comment here, this is the way to, to die. And this is the way to live. Think of it. As he exhales for the last time, Jesus submits his departing spirit to the Father. This is the way to die. This is the way to throw yourself upon the Lord in absolute confident trust. I am yours. Take my spirit. Receive me into your presence. But I would suggest that the only way anyone dies that way is if you live that way. It's not just the way to die, it's the way to live. You cannot live with a sense of self-dependent mastery over your own life, then come to your final moments on earth and submit your spirit to God in dependent trust. That makes no sense. We need, rather, to labor to integrate life and death so that when we die, assuming we are conscious at that time, we entrust body and spirit to God as Jesus did here. So I, I would just ask us all, how will you die? How will I die? We cannot know the means by which death will take us, of course. So we cannot know for certain how we will respond. We need to think about it and ask, is my pending death integrated with the way that I live? In May of 1998, I got about as close to discovering that response as one can get, at least in my mind. I was studying at our previous church building late on a Saturday evening. Now kids, this was the last century. I didn't have a laptop. 
I had to go to the building and work on a laptop or on a hard, what do they call it, uh, desktop. There it is at, at the church. See, it was last century. I can't even remember this thing. But while I'm there studying late at night, a terrible storm hit that small building. Hail and straight line winds began to shake the building so violently, I came to the conclusion of two absolute realities in my mind. The first was that that building was going to lift off its foundations and be blown away. Secondly, I was dead very soon. There was no question. There was no maybe this, maybe that. I was gone, and I knew it to the core of my being. And I lay in the center of our auditorium under a chair. <laughs> Great protection. This is all we had. We had no basement. I had nowhere to go. There, were, there was glass in most of the rooms. I just laid there and bid this waking world goodbye. I was terrified by the fury of the storm, certainly on one level, but I felt more resigned to death than afraid of it. It was just like, here I go. This is the time. This is the way out. And I remember longing to pray. And I couldn't. I just, I just couldn't form a prayer. Nothing, nothing came. I, I wanted to, you know, maybe write something somewhere and be, be left over for posterity if anything was left through this storm. I couldn't think of anything. The only thing that came out of my mouth was, Lord, receive my spirit. I didn't study it. I didn't think of this passage. Perhaps this passage influenced that. It was the only thing I could think of. Lord, receive my spirit. And I was ready for the roller coaster ride that was just about to come and blow me away. But I remember for years after that, I was so disappointed that I could not pray. I was so almost embarrassed that I couldn't come up with some profound statement. You have the time to think. You're all by yourself. There's no one else to think about, and you can't come up with anything. I always felt bad about it. And then I came to the point, Lord, receive my spirit. That's about as good as we can do. That's not, there's not a lot left to say when you're, entering, when you're exiting this world. There's not anything more important than to submit your spirit to God. It's not going to be put down in books. It's not going to be something anybody remembers. It's not going to be something profound. It's this simple thing is that's all we can do. It isn't about us. It's not what we can say or think or do. It's about Him. And if we're in that spot, it won't make you feel like a hero, I can tell you that. No one will write down your last words because they're so unique or so profound. But whether we can speak words or not, not the point. The point is that's how you die well. And that's how then we should live. Lord, receive my spirit. I submit to you. I'm yours. That's how Jesus leaves. That's 
how he ends. Not in a whimper, but in a bold, triumphant, receive my spirit. I'm coming home. That's how to live. And that's how to die. Well, there's several observers who bear witness to the horror of Jesus' death in verses 47 through 49. We see this emerging from the text as Luke chooses what to include and what to exclude here. But verse 47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent or righteous. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman imperial army, the commanders of a hundred men, theoretically. This man was apparently in charge of the crucifixion. We learn from Mark 15, 39, that he saw how Jesus died. So he's observing Jesus dying, and when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, this man has seen a lot, and he draws the conclusion he was innocent. That is, he was righteous. Something like he was a good man who was right with God. This is no religious leader. This is a soldier, a Roman soldier. And he gets that. The Jewish religious authorities knew Jesus was innocent. Verse 22 of this chapter, Pilate asked them for accusations and all they can say is kill him. Pilate knew it, verses 4, verse 14, verse 22. Herod knew it, verse 15. The repentant robber knew it, verse 41. And now a Roman centurion sees the light. This man did no wrong. The point Luke is driving home is that the wages of sin is death and that Jesus died, but not for his sin. He died in our place to pay the price of our redemption. We need way more than the centurion statement to draw that conclusion, but we have that material, and that's where Luke is pointing. Jesus died to satisfy God's just demand for the punishment of sin. He died bearing the curse against sinners as the Lamb of God. And the horror that this man now recognizes is that an innocent man who was right with God has been unjustly executed. What's he saying? We got this wrong. We got this wrong. This man is not dying for his sin. The centurion drew this conclusion by watching how Jesus died. In verse 48, there's other spectators, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. Remember, crucifixion always in the most prominent place that was doable. So as far as we can construct it, it's right outside the city walls, right by a trafficked gate. The Romans never wasted a crucifixion. They wanted everybody to see what happens when you cross Rome. No pun intended. They're watching. And what do they see? The crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. To beat your chest in sorrow was a sign of grief, a sign of deep mourning. There was no one going away with hilarity. The mocking seems to have stopped. And people are coming to terms with what has happened. Watching him die, they rightly conclude that an innocent man 
has been executed. The disciples, verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Everyone who knew him personally, and it's a touching, sobering, heart-wrenching statement. Those women that had come with him from Galilee. And this isn't why they came. They came to support him. To help him with food, to help him with travel, to help him with their finances, to make this journey here to this important place where he would enter Jerusalem as the King of Kings and present himself as God's Messiah to Israel, which he did. They didn't come for this. And where are they? I think Luke's being very careful with his words here. These women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. This was the hour of darkness and Christ's followers are at the periphery as outcasts. While their hearts are exploding with grief and pain, there is nothing they can do. There is much danger to avoid Witnessing this miscarriage of justice from afar, it seems that all is lost. Evil has reared its head and has won this day. But thankfully, their deep sorrow was about to turn to exuberant joy just the day after the morrow. On that glad day, the meaning of Jesus' death morphed from tragedy to triumph. His resurrection confirmed that his death secures the forgiveness of all who put their trust in his, sanctif- in his satisfaction of God's just wrath against sinners. We see how Jesus dies. We see the reaction to it. And it leads us to ask the question and face the question, have you placed your personal trust for salvation from God's wrath in Jesus crucified and risen? Have you put your trust and your confidence there? If not, then much like the passerby in verse 48, you have the opportunity this morning to stop and to linger at the cross. You've been given that opportunity in God's providential direction to you to stand and watch Jesus die, so to speak, in our mind's eye. And you cannot walk away from that scene unchanged. It's impossible. You can look at Christ dying and you can harden your heart. You can say, yeah, I know. I don't really believe it happened. Or, I mean, hardly anybody says that because history makes it pretty clear. But you might say that. I don't know if it really happened. Or, he just had a bad day. It's this Savior stuff. I don't need that. I'm okay as I am without Jesus. His death really has nothing to do with me. And little by little, you continue to harden your heart against what Christ has done. That's one basic response. And it's a danger of being here today. But the other response is to draw from Jesus himself here and say, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
to throw yourself in dependence upon the Lord into your hands now that you're alive. I commit my body and spirit. I commit myself to this one who died as the Passover lamb in the place of sinners. May God enlighten you to see that need and come to him today. For those of us who have embraced Christ as Savior, let us say together and as we sing again, that's the only way to truly live, is to turn body and spirit over to him in submission, day after day, moment after moment, to live that way so that when we come to the point of death, we can say in a way that's been integrated with our life, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's all we got. And that is enough for all eternity. Lord, aid us to this end. Help us to die well. I pray in behalf of those who know not Christ and pray that they'll respond and not harden their hearts any longer. For those of us who know you, Lord, prepare us for that day when we will enter your presence and we don't know, honestly, any more joyful thought than to think of entering into your presence free of sin. And that day when free from sinning, we behold your glorious face. Bring that day and aid us now as we respond to the death of Jesus to remember again as your people that his death has everything to do with our life. And I pray that we'd live it then for your glory in a way that says that every corner of our life, every secret of our life, every choice that we make, every thought that courses through our mind, may we be learning to say, Father, into your hands I commit body and spirit. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen.